Welcome, weirdos. I wanted to let you know of a big change we have made here at One Weird Chick. One Weird Chick has partnered with Patreon to offer superfans exclusive content. For $1 a month, you can become an official creeper, which gives you ad-free access to all episodes. Can't get enough of One Weird Chick fast enough? Then become an official stranger for $2 a month. In addition to ad-free content, you'll also get episodes of One Weird Chick a day earlier than regular listeners. But for the ultimate One Weird Chick fan, for just $3 a month, you can join the ranks of the weirdos. Weirdos receive ad-free content, early access to episodes, and an exclusive One Weird Chick button all in addition to being able to request content for upcoming episodes. To sign up for all your One Weird Chick must-haves, visit patreon.com slash onewearchick. Now, on to the show. Lizzie Borden took an axe. She gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Welcome, weirdos. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. Nestled in a quaint part of Fall River, Massachusetts, lies a house that was once the scene of a gruesome double homicide. On the morning of August 4th, 1892, the bodies of Andrew Borden and his wife Abby were found bludgeoned to death in their family home. Despite the hustle and bustle of Main Street only a block away, it was reported that no one heard a thing. When the police arrived at the scene, they only had one suspect in mind, Lizzie Borden. On December 25th, 1845, wealthy businessman Andrew Jackson Borden married Sarah Anthony Morse. And on the 1st of March, 1851, the couple welcomed their first child, Emma Leonora. Unlike Emma's siblings that would arrive in later years, Emma was the only child who could later recall the memories of their mother. A little-known fact about the Borden story is that before Lizzie's arrival in 1860, Sarah Borden gave birth to her second child, Alice Esther. Unfortunately, Alice died at the age of two as a result of water on the brain and is often omitted from the story. On July 19, 1860, Andrew and Sarah welcomed the arrival of their third child, Elizabeth, Lizzie, Andrew Borden. Lizzie's relationship with her mother was tragically cut short when Sarah passed away from uterine congestion. Twelve-year-old Emma quickly assumed the role of caretaker to three-year-old Lizzie, beginning what some would refer to as a lifelong codependency. Three years after Sarah's passing, Andrew remarried a lady by the name of Abby Dufresne Gray. According to the website Tatted Fabric, Full Rivers Lizzie Borden, it is stated that in Abby, Andrew had found, quote, a capable, 
respectable, and sturdy woman to take care of the house and someone to look after his growing daughters." End quote. The marriage appeared to be that of practicality for Andrew rather than love. Emma felt tremendous animosity towards her stepmother. Throughout Abby's life, it is said that Emma refused to call her anything other than Mrs. Borden. When Abby joined the Bordens, Emma had been the lady of the house, tending to her father and caring for her younger sister. She was now forced to waive any ownership to that title, and she wasn't happy. Like her sister, Lizzie also disliked her stepmother. While she would call Abby mother on occasion, she confided only in her sister. As Lizzie grew, so too did her disdain for Abby. Abby was not seen as a mother figure by either of the girls, but rather as someone who stood to inherit their father's wealth. Things eventually became so tense that Emma and Lizzie refused to speak to Abby unless it was in direct response to a question she had asked. In Halloween-Lifestyle.com's article, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, or Did She?, of the Borden's home, the website states, quote, The Bordens were a tremendously dysfunctional family, and theirs was most definitely not a happy home. Borden family battle royales were notorious in the neighborhood, as loud and violent family arguments could often be heard coming from inside the house. These arguments were said to have intensified in the days leading up to the murders. End quote. Emma and Lizzie were temporarily separated during Emma's later teenage years when she left for a boarding school at Wheaton Female Seminary. Emma only saw Lizzie and her father on holidays whilst she attended Wheaton. She would eventually withdraw from her studies before graduating and return to the family home in Fall River, Massachusetts. Growing up, Lizzie was a peculiar child who did not make friends easily. An average student all throughout her education, it is said that Lizzie was observed as an anxious and brooding individual. With no prospects of suitors and an introverted nature, Lizzie would eventually become a Sunday school teacher at the Central Congressional Church. In 1872, Andrew Borden purchased the property at 232nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. According to FamousTrials.com, quote, Mr. Borden was the president of a major bank in his hometown of Fall River, owned substantial property, was the director of three major cloth mills, and was very wealthy, end quote. By today's currency value, Andrew Borden's estimated portfolio was over $8 million. Despite his wealth, Mr. Borden was frugal. He could have chosen to live in a much richer part of Fall River, like the Hill District, where other affluent families lived, but chose the property in the downtown district known as the Flats instead. Retired RCMP homicide detective and former coroner turned blogger Gary Rogers states, quote, It wasn't that Andrew Borden couldn't afford to live and house his family in the hill. However, Andrew Borden was well known to be a frugal man 
who valued amassing money over spending it. As such, Lizzie Borden lived with her family in an older house that had no modern amenities like indoor plumbing or electricity." End quote. According to LizzieBorden.com, the company that now maintains the original property at 232nd Street, Mr. Borden quickly renovated the property and had it remodeled from a two-tenant dwelling into a place that his family could call home. Eventually, Mr. Borden would connect the house to the city water supply, giving his family a flushable toilet in the cellar. But that was the extent of the house's luxuries. There were no hallways in the house, with the exception of an upstairs landing. You had to go through one room to get to another. As a result, locks were in abundance. To this day, the structure is still standing and operates as the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. But we'll get to that in due course. Both Emma and Lizzie continued to live with Mr. and Mrs. Borden well into their late 30s and 40s. Also in residence was the Borden's live-in maid, 26-year-old Bridget Sullivan. An Irish immigrant, Lizzie and Emma often referred to Bridget as Maggie. There are varying reports as to why they chose this nickname. Some state that it was the name of the previous maid and had just stuck when Bridget arrived, whereas others think it may have been a derogatory name given by the sisters to assert their authority and class. Little did Bridget know when she first moved in with the Bordens that she would soon become the key witness to the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Borden and the center of many conspiracy theories in the years that followed their deaths. Abby Borden was acutely aware of her stepdaughter's disdain for her. However, it wasn't until the 2nd of August, 1892, two days before the murders, that she considered them life-threatening. The previous night, Bridget had served Mr. and Mrs. Borden leftover swordfish for dinner. Later in the evening, both Mr. and Mrs. Borden fell violently ill. Given the summer heat and the poor food preservation techniques at the time, food poisoning was not at all uncommon in 1892. Mrs. Borden, on the other hand, was convinced that she had been intentionally poisoned. The following morning, she visited her doctor and confided her fears. Learning that Mrs. Borden had consumed fish the night before, her doctor was unconvinced, but accompanied her home so he could check on Mr. Borden too. Mr. Borden, however, refused the doctor's services and would not allow him into the house, leaving Mrs. Borden to continue speculating about her stepdaughter's intentions. That evening, Mr. and Mrs. Borden would fall ill again after eating mutton stew for their dinner. At this time, Lizzie confided in her neighbor, Alice Russell, that she thought that Mr. and Mrs. Borden's sudden illness had occurred because someone had poisoned their milk delivery. Alice would later tell jurors in court that Lizzie, quote, feared that some unidentified enemy of her father's might soon try to kill him. End quote. In the early hours of August 4th, 
1892, Bridget served breakfast to Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Given their disdain for their stepmother, Emma and Lizzie refused to eat with Mr. and Mrs. Borden. It was not at all uncommon for Bridget to serve two of every meal in the Borden household. One sitting for Mr. and Mrs. Borden, and one for Lizzie and Emma. However, on this particular occasion, Emma had been away visiting friends in Fairhaven, and Lizzie had slept in. Lizzie would eventually join her family downstairs, as would her uncle, John Morse, who had arrived unexpectedly the day before to visit. Morse left the house around 8.45 a.m. and had a solid alibi that confirmed he was not present in the house during the events that were soon to unfold. At approximately 9.15 a.m., Mr. Borden left the house to attend to his businesses in town. Little did he know that this would be the last time he would leave 232nd Street alive. Only Lizzie, Bridget, and Mrs. Borden remained at home. Mrs. Borden asked Bridget to wash the windows while she retired upstairs to make up the guest room. A short while later, Lizzie informed Bridget that Mrs. Borden had received a letter from a sick relative and had gone to help them. Except this wasn't true, and the alleged letter was never found. Shortly after Mr. Borden had left for work, Mrs. Borden began her morning duties by making the bed in the guest room on the second floor where John Morse had slept the night before. Whilst making the bed, she was attacked by an unknown assailant wielding a hatchet. According to the website Halloween-Lifestyle.com, quote, Forensic evidence suggests that she was facing her attacker when the first blow was struck, end quote. Had Abby survived the attack, she may have been able to identify her attacker. Sadly, she fell to the floor after the initial hit where the assailant delivered another 19 blows to the back of her head. At the time of Mrs. Borden's attack, Bridget had been resting in her bedroom after completing her duties of the morning. Lizzie, on the other hand, claimed that she was in the barn allegedly neither heard the attack. Mr. Borden returned home at approximately 10.45 a.m. He was surprised to find the front door locked and struggled with his keys, unaware that the door had been locked from the inside. As he struggled to unlock the door, Bridget heard Lizzie laughing. Lizzie was coming down the stairs from the second floor, directly opposite the open door to the guest bedroom where Mrs. Borden lay dead. Lizzie greeted her father, and when he inquired about Mrs. Borden, Lizzie explained that she had gone out after receiving a letter. Lizzie helped settle her father on the sofa in the living room and left him to sleep while she went outside to the barn. Having no idea that his wife's dead body lay upstairs, he stretched out on the couch and quickly fell asleep. Mr. Borden would never wake up from his nap. He was attacked by the same assailant who delivered 11 blows to his face, splitting it almost in half and leaving him unrecognizable. 
Shortly after 11 a.m., Bridget was awakened by Lizzie's screams from downstairs. Quote, Maggie, come down. Come down quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. End quote. According to Smithsonian Magazine, Lizzie told Bridget that, quote, she needed a doctor and sent the servant across the street to the family physician's house. He was not at home. Lizzie then told her to get a friend down the street. Yet Lizzie never sent the servant to the Irish immigrant doctor who lived right next door. He had an impressive educational background and served as Fall River's city physician. Nor did Lizzie seek the help of a French-Canadian doctor who lived diagonally behind the Bordens." End quote. Police were eventually called to attend to the scene. Neighbour Adelaide Churchill came to comfort Lizzie while the police investigated. Churchill asked Lizzie about Mrs. Borden's whereabouts, and Lizzie explained that Abby had been called away to tend to a sick friend. She then added that she thought she had heard Abby return and go upstairs. Churchill would soon make the terrifying discovery of Abby's lifeless body when she went upstairs to investigate. While Andrew's body had been found still warm, Abby's was cold, leading investigators to conclude that Mrs. Borden had likely been murdered at least an hour and a half earlier than her husband. What could have been a simple open and shut case was unfortunately compromised from the beginning. According to Halloween-Lifestyle.com, quote, thousands of curious townspeople were actually allowed to enter the house and wander around the crime scene, unintentionally corrupting forensic evidence, end quote. An autopsy was performed on both Mr. and Mrs. Borden in the family home by the coroner. Mrs. Borden was moved to the dining room for the procedure, whilst Mr. Borden was placed in front of the black horsehair sofa in the sitting room for his. Lizzie was subjected to intensive interrogation in the days following the murders. Her answers were often muddled and contradictory, leading to her quickly becoming the main suspect. The public became fascinated with the case, and despite their need to be kept up to date as the case progressed, none were convinced she was actually guilty. She was, after all, a Sunday school teacher at the Central Congressional Church. The crimes were so violent in nature that none could believe a woman was responsible. In addition, given her father's affluence, the public could not believe that someone of Lizzie's class could be responsible for something so horrific. On August 11th, Lizzie was officially arrested and charged for her father and stepmother's murders. Her trial began on the 5th of June, 1893, in New Bedford, Massachusetts. In attendance were the prosecuting attorneys, Jose M. Knowlton, and the future United States Supreme Court Justice, William H. Moody. Present for the defense were attorneys Andrew V. Jemmings, Melvin O. Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Emma Borden was also present and publicly supported Lizzie in her innocence, not only during the trial, but for the rest of her life. 
Coincidentally, five days before the trial commenced, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. The victim, Bertha Manchester, was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden murders were remarkably comparable and did not go unnoticed by the jurors on Lizzie's case. However, Jose Carrera de Meller later pleaded guilty to the crime. During his trial, it was determined that he was not in Fall River during the Borden murders, leaving Lizzie as the main suspect. During the trial, Lizzie's behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer questions even if the answer would be of benefit to her plea of not guilty. She often contradicted herself and provided alternate accounts of the morning, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, but then saying she was in the dining room ironing. At one point, she claimed that she had removed her father's boots and helped him put on his slippers, while police photographs clearly showed him wearing his boots. Lizzie had been prescribed morphine to calm her nerves. This was later used by her defense team to justify her irrational behavior. Though ultimately, it confirmed her guilt in the eyes of the public. Whilst the coroners concluded that the Bordens were murdered with a hatchet, the actual murder weapon was never found. In the basement of the Borden home, police had found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh. It was presented in court as evidence. In addition, the dust on the hatchet head, unlike the dust on the other tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. Although fingerprint testing was becoming common in Europe at the time, the Fall River police were wary of its reliability and refused to test for prints on the potential murder weapon. Today, the hatchet head is on display at the Fall River Historical Society. During the trial, the prosecution alleged that on August 3, 1892, a day before the murders, Lizzie had tried to buy poison from D.R. Smith, a drugstore on South Main Street. According to the 2004 article, The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Doug Linder, the prosecution sequestered Eli Benz, the local druggist, and requested that he recount his experiences with Lizzie. Benz alleged that Lizzie asked to purchase 10 cents worth of prussic acid. Prussic acid is a diluted form of hydrocyanic acid, a quick-acting, colorless, odorless poison. Lizzie volunteered that she needed it to clean a seal skin cape. Benz refused to sell it to her and explained that prussic acid was only sold on doctor's orders. Lizzie insisted that she had purchased it on other occasions, but still, Benz refused to sell it to her. Alice Russell, the neighbor that Lizzie once confided in, testified on stand that on August 8th, 1892, she had witnessed Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove. 
Lizzie claimed that the dress had been ruined when she brushed up against wet paint. Although, many think it was covered in blood from when she murdered Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Apart from the clothes worn by the victims, no other blood-stained clothing had been found at the scene by the police. During their autopsies, both Mr. and Mrs. Borden's heads had been removed for preservation and testing. The skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on June 5, 1893. Upon seeing them in the courtroom, it is said that Lizzie fainted. On June 20th, 1893, the jury was sent to deliberate. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Borden of the murders. Everyone was stunned. Upon exiting the courthouse, Lizzie told reporters that she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world, end quote. After her acquittal, Lizzie and Emma inherited their father's entire estate. Because Mrs. Borden was ruled to have died before Mr. Borden, her estate went first to Andrew, and then, at his death, passed to his daughters. The sisters sold the Borden house and moved across town to the Hill District, where they purchased a house they affectionately named Maplecroft. Despite her acquittal, Borden was ostracized by the Fall River Society. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lisbeth A. Borden in an attempt to distance herself from the controversy of the Borden murders. Before her death in 1927 of complications from gallbladder surgery, Lizzie's name was brought into the public eye once more when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897. Lizzie lived at Maplecroft with her sister Emma until a violent argument in 1905. Neither ever confirmed the subject of the argument, leaving a lot to speculate. The 2014 movie, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, starring Christina Ricci as Lizzie Borden and Clea Duval as Emma Borden, plays with a theory that many consider to be true. It is possible that the argument that finally separated the two sisters was that Lizzie confessed, in confidence to Emma, her part in the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Emma, having supported her sister's innocence from the beginning, became enraged. Another alternative theory floating around the internet is that the argument was over a party that Lizzie had thrown for actress Nance O'Neill. Regardless of what actually happened, the sisters never spoke again. Today, Lizzie Borden enthusiasts can stay a night at the original Borden family home at 232nd Street in Fall River. For approximately 275 US dollars a night, guests can sleep in Lizzie's room. Or, for the more daring, for approximately 300 US dollars a night, guests can stay in the John Moore suite where Mrs. Borden took her final breaths. Rebranded as the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, the company's website, lizzieborden.com, proudly boasts that, quote, the house is just as it was. The furnishings retain their rightful place. 
The decor has been painstakingly duplicated, and the original hardware and doors are still intact. Artifacts from the murder case are displayed while memorabilia from the era line shelves and mantletops. A visitor is literally transported back to that morning when a perfect storm of events culminated in a double murder." End quote. As is the nature with unsolved crimes, many speculate and often alternative theories are brought to light. One such theory suggests that Lizzie may have been sexually abused by her father. However, incest would not have been a topic discussed at the time, nor were the examinations of sexual assault in practice. So there is no way of confirming this theory. In the 1984 novel Lizzie, author Ed McBain suggested a more commonly known theory that Lizzie and Bridget were involved in a sexual relationship. McBain elaborated on his speculation in a 1999 interview, speculating that Abby had caught Lizzie and Bridget together and had reacted in horror and disgust. Lizzie then killed Abby with a candlestick. When Andrew returned, she had confessed to him her crime, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. As Lizzie never married, rumors about her sexuality were often discussed but never proven. As for Bridget, after the murders, she found work with another family and eventually married a man she had met while in Montana. Allegedly, when Bridget passed away in 1948, she confessed to her sister on her deathbed that she had changed her testimony in order to protect Lizzie. When Bridget died, so too did any answers as to what actually happened on that fateful day in August all those years ago. To this day, no other suspect has officially been named, and the case remains unsolved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. Don't forget to check out One Weird Chick on Patreon for exclusive content. This episode of One Weird Chick was edited by Toby Sagona. One Weird Chick's opening theme was created by Brielle Johnson, and logo was designed by Lauren Adams. Special thanks to Claudia Fain for her rendition of the nursery rhyme, She Took an Axe. Follow One Weird Chick on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for more exclusive content.